Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Okay, Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to finish up the book of Hebrews today, and then we're going to jump in, jump in, jump in to the Psalms next week. Um, this is me ramping up, so just give me a minute. My, my uh, mind's going to catch up with my mouth here in a minute. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13. As we're wrapping up Hebrews, the writer is going to make this huge shift in his writing style. So he's really been making a theological argument for the entire book that Jesus is better so he's writing contextually, he's writing to a group of young Jewish believers that are under intense persecution and they're wavering in their faith. So, so these are people who had begin following the way of Jesus, but, but as the heat is rising in that culture, they're beginning to lean back into old ways of thinking, old ways of living. And so this entire book, the writer has been very convincing that Jesus is better. He's a better prophet, better priest, better king, better than the angels, better than Abraham, better than Moses. He's better than the sacrificial system because as the greater high priest, he provides a greater perfect sacrifice through his blood for all people for all time. And so we've seen that all throughout the last five months of Hebrews. He's just been doubling, tripling, quadrupling over and over. He's been saying, Jesus is better. Say it with me. Jesus is better. Say it with feeling. Jesus is better. So now he's gonna make this shift with the assumptive reasoning because Jesus is better. He's gonna start giving them some things that they need to do. It feels a little bit scattershot as it shifts to chapter 13. We don't know who wrote this book. Uh, most people believe that it wasn't Paul, although some would argue that it was. Uh, chapter 13 feels the most like Paul of the, the, the rest of this book as he begins to really speak in to practical daily living as a follower of Jesus. And so uh, any good leadership guru will tell you that the why matters. If you don't know your why, uh, you may do the right things, but it could be that you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And so um, I think about growing up, my dad, you know, he would tell me to do something or not to do something, and I'm a why asker, right? So uh, I don't accept things at face value. Why? And what would he say? Because I told you. That should be enough, right? And, uh, and at the end of the day, um, that's not always a sufficient answer, is it? 
Sometimes we need just a little bit more. We need a little more context. And know this, in your walk with Jesus, you're never gonna completely understand why because you're not God and you can't understand the mind of God. And yet, uh, the writer of Hebrews has given us this very significant why. Why? Why is Jesus better? And he's laid it out. And now he's like, because Jesus is better, there are some things that you need to do. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche said, when you know your why, you can live any how. If you know your why, you can live your how. Uh, Michael Hyatt, a leadership guy, said, when you know your why, you'll know your way. And then another guy put it this way, when you know why you do what you do, the toughest days become easier. All of that is true, right? When we know our why, it's kind of this guiding light that helps us move forward. And so, Uh, The book of Hebrews has followed this line of thinking. The authors convincingly laid out not only that Jesus is better, but why is better? Why is worth following? And as we enter into chapter 13, this assumptive reasoning now, he's saying now that you're convinced that Jesus is a better way, here are a few things you need to do as a follower of Jesus. And so uh, right at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, um, he says something that reminds me a lot of Romans chapter 12. So uh, the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of Romans 12, verses one and two, we've talked about this verse a lot lately. Um, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your pure, true, and proper worship. And then he says in verse two, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by what? the renewing of your mind, that you may know God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so uh, Paul lays out this, this construct in Romans chapter 12, this idea of what our true and proper worship should look like. And it starts with offering your bodies as living sacrifices. Why I'm bringing that up is because there's so much sacrificial talk in the book of Hebrews, right? And what do we learn about sacrifices? They're dead, Right? You kill an animal, you place it on the altar, and the blood spilling over the altar is atonement or payment for sin. And now Paul says, hey, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, Sam and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, and he had heard this said, and it's so well put, that a living sacrifice is one that crawls back up willingly on the altar day after day. So think about that. That's a little morbid, right? Every day, it's the word of Jesus, right? Luke 9, 23, if anybody wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul said it in Galatians 2, 20, for I have been crucified with Christ. That's death. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so offering your bodies as a living sacrifice means each and every day you wake up, you get in the secret place and you lay yourself on the altar of God and say, today, my life is yours. Easy to say, hard to do, right? He says, this is your true and proper worship. Then he goes on to say that, man, we reject the patterns of the world. We live in a counter-cultural way by every day we renew our mind. We make our mind new. We give our mind to Jesus. So we're offering our bodies to Jesus. We're offering our mind and our heart to Jesus. And he says that when we do that, we know God's will. 
Anybody want to know God's will for your life? I've just given it to you. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Worship from that place. So, the, so here's the implication. Worship is not a song you sing. It is literally the product of your life. It's the life you live. You can sing songs in here all day long, but your worship is what is lived outside of these walls. It's the way you treat your family. It's the way you treat your waitress at lunch today. It's the way you treat the checkout clerk or the person in front of you in the you know, eight items only when they clearly have 20 items. I can make a list for you, but you know what I'm talking about. So here's why I bring up Romans 12, because at the end of Hebrews 12, he lays it out for us. Look at verse 28. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He says we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is powerful language. So right before that, he said, listen, God shakes the earth so that the only things that remain are the things of God. Amen. Some of you know that. Some of you have experienced the shaking and the sifting of God. And it can be a painful process, can it? Yes. Sometimes it's painful. But guess what? What we need are the only things that remain the unshakable kingdom of God. And he says that because we have this unshakable kingdom of God, it leads us in response to a life of worship, right? We worship not to earn God's favor. We worship with grateful hearts because of what he's already done. So know this, you all have something to be grateful for this morning. And if you're not sure, you're living and breathing, that should be enough, right? So thank God for the breath in your lungs today. Like just silently where you are, thank him that you're alive another day. That in itself is a gift from God. I don't think any of you walked here, right? Okay, yeah. You have a vehicle to drive. You have a roof over your head because of those things. Man, be grateful, Parenthetically, I walked from my house here about three weeks ago. Some of you saw me on the road. Yet from a distance, you're like, who's that homeless person walking on the road? And uh, um, I was wearing this sweet headband. And uh, uh, I, 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 I was walking to get my AirPods. And they were in my office. And I'm like, man, I want my AirPods. But instead of driving, I'm like, you know what? I'll just walk to church. That was a huge mistake, by the way. Um, <laughs> The shoulder is, the reason they call it a shoulder is because it's about the width of my shoulders and cars driving way too fast on Fish Creek um, nearly took me out. But um, uh, this whole idea, I mean, think about it. Think about today, the gratefulness that you should have in your life for what he's already done. God's kingdom is a firm foundation. All other kingdoms will fall when shaken including your own. If you're building your own kingdom, it is destined to fall. Amen. And so we allow God to shake until he's the only thing left. And then we move from fearful to grateful and we live a life of worship. Okay, so assuming that the way of Jesus is better, we're assuming that. We spent the last five months saying it over and over and over. 
Here's some closing thoughts on what this life of worship looks like. I'm gonna spend more time on some than others, so if you feel like I'm getting bogged down on one point, we will move forward more quickly on others, probably. All right, Hebrews chapter 13, starting with verse one. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. So let's pause right there. It says, because we live in this unshakable kingdom and we get to approach God with this life of worship, the number one thing that he calls them to do is what? Love each other. Love. It is the foundation of our faith. Love. If you don't have love, you ain't got nothing. Love is the foundational force. Love is literally all you need. It is the foundational truth by which everything is held together. Jesus said it in Matthew 22 when asked, what is the greatest commandment? What was his response? He he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. What? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love, love, love. Love God. So here's the thing. You can't start with number two. You can't start with just loving your neighbor just being a loving person. Because if you have not received the love that comes from Father God, you'll never be able to love the world around you the way they need to be loved. You love God, and then you love others. Uh, The most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. You realize that the gospel is motivated by love. God does not look at the Old Testament and and just think, "Ah, those guys... I gotta fix your problem. And he didn't shame you by sending Jesus. Well, let me jump down and fix this because y'all made a wreck out of things. No, motivated from a place of love, he gave his only son. Love is a motivational force for your life. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, uh, we talked through it a couple of years ago, uh, but Paul is laying out spiritual gifts. He lays it out in three different places. There are seven gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. There's seven in Romans 12. There's another seven in Ephesians 4. And so it's not an exhaustive list, but there are a lot of really great gifts that the Spirit gives. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, hey, we've all got a gift. We don't all have all of the gifts, but everyone has a gift And he says, uh, some of your hands, some of your feet, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, toes, fingers, uh, we all work together for the greater good in the kingdom of God. We all use our giftedness to serve for the greater good, right? But then 1 Corinthians 13 comes along. You've probably heard it at every wedding you've ever been to. It's called the love chapter. And so when we read it out of context, it paints this beautiful, beautiful picture of love. Look at verse one. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Does anybody know anybody like that, by the way? A resounding gong or a clanging cymbal? Yeah, don't point to anyone in the room. But, but uh, the, the, the point is this. He says, listen, if you don't have love, if you, if you have the, what does he say? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, he said, listen, you may be the most eloquent communicator in the world, but if it doesn't come from a place of love, it will be received as a clanging gong, a resounding symbol. 
Then he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If you are the most spiritual person in the world, and if you have the most wisdom, if you can prophesy, and he says, if you have faith that can move mountains, that means that you're really spiritual. But he says, if you don't have love, it's worthless. Then he says, if I give all I possess to the poor, give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. What is he saying? You can't buy your way into the kingdom of God. You can give away all your money, but if it's motivated by your own personal gain and not motivated from a place of love, it's worthless. Amen. And then he goes on and he defines love. He says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere, love never fails. Whew. That's a big list, right? So if you're like me, when you read that list, I'm like, Okay, so I'm failing in most of those, which means that I do not have what it takes. I am not loving by nature because I am self-motivated by nature. How about you? And so we look at that list, we look at the love chapter and it's like, man, I'm failing at the most foundational thing, the thing that is supposed to drive everything. What does that mean? It was never about me. I'll never love the way that I need to love. I'll never love Yvonne the way she needs to be loved. I'll never love you the way that you need to be loved. But you know what I can do? I can choose to be with Jesus and choose to allow him to transform my heart. And I can allow him to be loved through me in a way that I could never do on my own. That's the point, that all of these gifts that are not all wrapped up in this deep-rooted living from a place of love, from a place of receiving the love that Jesus wants to give me so that I will have this deep well of love to give to others. But here's what's important. He says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. He's talking about love inside the church. Inside the church. So this is where the rubber meets the road. I think it's easier for us to love people outside the walls than it is inside the walls sometimes. Don't you find it sometimes easier to love your neighbor than your family member? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> okay. Take that one to the Lord. All right, so, but, but it's the truth. And the reason that the church is largely irrelevant to the world is because people look and we can be the most backbiting, judgmental, gossip-mongering people in the world. Amen. We need to be setting the pace in the way we love each other. And listen, no one's perfect. But here's what I, here's what I know for sure. When you know my heart and you know that I love you, You'll forgive when I misstep here and there, right? We gotta love each other. Jesus said in John 13 that that is the defining factor that proves that we are a disciple, a follower of the way of Jesus. 
by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. The opposite is true. If people don't see you as someone that loves other people, they do not see you as a follower of Jesus. In fact, you're probably giving Jesus a bad name. So love is the foundation. So this life of worship begins with this foundation of love. Let's keep moving. Look at verse two. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Yeah, that's like a CBS miniseries, right? (laughs) Show hospitality to who? Strangers. Why does he say that? Because he intuits that you're gonna invite your best friends over to dinner. He intuits that you're gonna love and show hospitality to the people that you agree with, the people that you like, the people that you're in community with. But he says show hospitality to complete strangers. Is that scary in 2023? Yeah. I mean, we live in a dark world and it's like, well, I don't wanna open my doors to, you know, that's why I have a ring doorbell, right? I can look and see who it is before I decide if I wanna acknowledge that they're at my front door. And he says, hey, motivated from a place of love, love opens doors. Love says, it's not about me. So 2017, as a church, we went through a season that we called the host movement. And uh, the, the tagline was, love opens doors. And so it was this idea that as uh, people of restoration, that we see ourselves not as consumers, not as people that show up to church to take up a seat and, and to get fed, but we see ourselves on mission and we see ourselves as people who are hosting services for the community once a week. And so this idea was that every person has a stake in hosting our community. So every week at 8 o'clock, 9.45 and 11.30, we host these experiences for people that they can come in and hopefully uh, it's a disarming moment for them that they see Jesus in a new light and they see it because all of our gifts are on display. We are showing hospitality. And so um, as we're moving into this new season, uh, we're about to move into more worship space, uh, which means just more people are coming, which means we need more people to adopt this mindset of, hey, listen, Sunday's not about me. Sunday's about me serving. Sunday's about me seeing an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus right here on campus. We want to see that. We want to see you do that throughout the week. We want to see you show hospitality to strangers in your own home, in your own neighborhood, in your own uh, community. But man, right here on Sunday mornings, we want to be that. And it's so cool because I've heard so many uh, just awesome stories over the last few weeks, stories about our parking team. How many of you are part of the parking team? Okay, two of you. Um, yeah, well, they're not, they're out there parking. Yeah, so, <laughs> hey, guys, you're doing a great job. Uh, so, so here's the deal. 
these guys show up on Sunday morning. A lot of them are here between 6.30 and 7. They're setting up cones. They're putting on those beautiful yellow vests. And, um, and so here's what happens. Uh, you drive on campus and uh, you've been maybe waiting on Fish Creek because the last service, some dude's been running too long. We're working with him on that. Uh, but, uh, but, but you pull on campus and you're a little frustrated, right? Because you know if you don't get here on time, uh, you may have to sit in the lobby. Sorry, guys. And, uh, and, and so as you pull on, you've got this, this feeling about you. And these guys are the first line of defense. You know, they're trying to get you to back in and you're like, nobody's going to tell me what to do, <laughs> you know? And you know what they do? <laughs> they love you anyway. They're a warm greeting. So many people have said, man, my first time here, it was the parking team that, that I was just so disarmed by. I was so surprised. They were just awesome and loving and warm. And then you hit the door and we've got greeters in the lobby and then you come in here and, and, and people are caught up by this feeling of feeling loved by people. And so as we are migrating into a new facility, all the more reason that you see yourself not as a consumer, if you call Restoration Church your church home, this is aircraft carrier talk. We've got to man our battle stations. Yeah. And, and, and the way that we battle is by the way we love. By the way we show hospitality, love opens doors. And so you're going to hear a lot more about that over the next few weeks. So whether it be the parking team, greeting connection team, generations team with our children and students, whatever, you are a part of being a welcoming, intentional, and safe place for people to experience the way of Jesus. That's pretty cool, right? Yes, amen. And we get to do that. Yes. Could be that you could be the link on a chain of someone walking from complete darkness and lostness into the light in the yes. kingdom of God. God. You never know what a kind word, what an open door, a deference could do yes. to bring somebody into the kingdom. And so the writer's reference to showing hospitality to angels is really a connection back to the Old Testament. If you remember Genesis chapter 18, uh, the, these, these angelic visitors go to Abraham and Sarah and then they prophesy over Sarah that she's gonna have a baby. She's like 99. And they're like, hey, uh, when you turn 100, you're gonna have a baby and she scoffs at them. But these are angels that are prophesying this angelic visitation, but they open their doors to these angels. They make them some food. I didn't know that angels could eat real food, but that really happened, right? Then you move over to Genesis 19, angels visited Lot in his home in Sodom, that turned out completely differently. But this whole idea of hospitality, you never know. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, when he says, hey, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Yes, amen. So when we practice hospitality, we are doing it unto Jesus. He says, hey, listen, the least of these, that's me. That's me. You're serving me. And then he talks about this whole idea of, of, of prisoners and he says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them, as those who are mistreating you as if you yourselves were suffering. And this is this, uh, this picture of hospitality and long suffering saying, listen, out of sight, out of mind, right? Well, 
hate that for you. No, you're in the trenches with them and you are loving them well. Okay, verse four. So we've got love, we've got hospitality. Verse four, he says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Okay, so first of all, he's speaking contextually to problems that were going on in the church during that time. So there was a sexually permissive society, a sexually permissive culture uh, going on in the first century. That has not changed at all. In the 21st century, we live in maybe as sexually permissive, as sexually uh, deranged uh, culture that we've ever had. We are sliding toward Romans chapter one at all times. And so um, I, wanted, I wanna make a couple of statements about marriage, sex, sexual identity, so that we're clear on biblical truth and on what we believe as a church. Um, but before I do, I do need to say this. This is coming from the backdrop of love, from the backdrop of hospitality. So as I walk through this, this is drenched in love and not judgment. Um, I recognize that uh, as I make these statements, these are highly politicized today. So this is not about who you vote for. This is just about the truth of God's word. And so if we're gonna celebrate something, let's celebrate the truth of God's word. That the truth of God's word is unchanging. And we always approach these matters with humility and love. This is not about being right. Okay, first, biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, it's very surprising that, you know, in 2023 that we have to say that, um, but biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, the government can uh, restate what marriage is. Our culture can restate what marriage is, and that's fine. That, that's between, you know, the government and the government. It's between uh, the culture and the culture. But at the end of the day, God's word has been unchanged. Amen. Biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter two. It says a man will leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so um, there's no place in the Bible that, that advocates for a man and a man, a woman and a woman. It's a man and a woman. That's just the biblical view of marriage and, and that's no judgment. It's just a statement of fact. So if you embrace the way of Jesus, if you embrace the Bible, it has not changed for over 2,000 years and, and, and we can't reinterpret it to accommodate our lifestyle. I know that there are people in the room that you have uh, family members, friends, whatever, that are living in, in a homosexual lifestyle, maybe even in a homosexual marriage. And man, I want you to know, we love them. I hope they come and hang out here because I hope that every person, that they will be drenched in the love and affection of Jesus when they're here. But this is just who we are. And we're gonna stand on that true second Sex of all kinds outside of marriage is not pure. Sex of all kinds. So this includes 
extramarital sex. The Bible calls it adultery. So extramarital sex, premarital sex, pornography, and same-sex activity. All of that. Anything outside the bounds of sex inside of the marriage covenant is not pure. It's wrong. So uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me that the church has taken the issue of homosexuality and made it the number one thing. And yet we find out that uh, a boyfriend and girlfriend are sleeping together and we're like, oh man, well, it kind of happens. We find out that someone's having an affair and we're like, well, I wonder, you know, what the spouse did to make them want to stray. And, and at the end of the day, it's all sin. And, and so, so sex of all kinds outside of the bounds of marriage, it's not pure, it's not right. And so we got to acknowledge that. And, and that's including homosexuality, but that's not the only thing. And so before we stand in judgment, the question is, okay, so are, are, we, are we looking at this issue holistically? Because we live in this crazy permissive culture that picks and choose, chooses uh, our, our levels of what we think sin is. Any sexual sin that is habitual outside of the covenant of marriage, it, it's sin. And we've got to be able to call it that. So with that being said, God's grace and mercy covers a multitude of sin. So I know that there are those in this room that have failed sexually in, in, in different ways, myself included. And so I, I, I look at that and just say, hey, uh, we are not here to be the judge and jury. He says that God will judge. We're here to show grace and love and mercy to everyone who comes and says, oh. Because here's the thing. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. Yes, amen. And so we get to be advocates for the love and grace and forgiveness that Jesus wants to provide and kind of get over ourselves when we want to be the judge and jury. This can be a complicated issue, um, but we get to stand firm in our culture right? But we do it drenched in love. Like I know that I say this a lot to people. Hey, listen, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to judge you. And anytime I have a conversation with people about anything regarding a biblical worldview, I say, hey, listen, what, like the conversation we're about to have, it's based on the fact that I believe the Bible's true. And anytime they go, well, I don't believe the Bible's true. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, what do you want to talk about? How do you think the Cowboys are going to do this year? Because <laughs> here's the thing. At the end of the day, if we're speaking apples and oranges, it's kind of worthless. We don't argue people into the kingdom. And so when, when people get to a place where they want to uh, argue the truth of God's word, I'm just like, hey, listen, I, I'm really not interested. I don't need to prove to you that this is true. It stood the test of time. Men have lived and died changed by the power of this book, we'll all live and die and hopefully changed by the power of this book. Yes. Amen. 
So that's all I got to say about that. Um, let's keep moving. Verse five, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we've talked about sex and money. Maybe we'll hit politics before we're done. Um, uh, stay free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Okay, so this echoes uh, 1 Timothy 6.10. In 1 Timothy 6.10, uh, he talks about this whole idea. Um, can you put that up, Jack? 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So he doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. And so there, there are two key thoughts here. First, he says, be content with what you have. Live with a sense of contentment. And so uh, I think one of the questions is, when is enough enough? And I would say, well, ask Jesus in the secret place and he'll tell you when enough is enough. But I would say for most of us, it's probably the curse of an affluent culture. It's never enough, right? No matter what I have, I see what's in my neighbor's driveway and I want it right? I hear my neighbors splashing around in their pool and I'm like, number one, why haven't you invited me over? Number two, um, I need a pool, right? And so I think, I think for all of us, we have these areas that we look and we're like, oh man, I need that. And of course, when that begins to take uh, hold of our lives and begins to be our guiding force, it's where we lose our way, Right? And so he says, number one, be content with what you have. Second, the writer references Deuteronomy 31.6. He says, be strong and courageous to not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord, your God, goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And so he's giving the connotation that, okay, so sometimes we need to be content with what we have, but sometimes we need to release the fear associated with not having enough. So uh, if you grew up without a lot and now you are a self-made man or a self-made woman, so many times there is fear associated with the stronghold that money can have in your life because there's a fear, what if, right? What if uh, I'm not provided for? And so out of a sense of security, we, we begin to hold on to it tighter and tighter, and God looks at you, even today, and says, do you trust me? He says, I've promised I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. As followers of Jesus, he's like, hey, do you trust me? Jesus talked about this for a long time in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter six, he's talking about money. Starting verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he's just saying, hey, listen, you got a worship problem. That, that money would be the number one thing that can pull you away. And he said, you can't serve two masters. Pick one or the other. But then he goes on and he gives some real practical insight. 
It says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the field and the sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flower, the flowers feel grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, "What should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear?" For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Have you ever heard verse 33? Yeah, probably one of the more uh, quoted out of context verses, right? I've quoted it out of context before. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. What are all these things? Whatever it is that God wants to tell you, all these things are. But that's not the context of the verse. The context is you're gripped by fear because you're afraid God won't provide. And he says, just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he'll take care of everything that you need. So this is a call to live open-handedly with your stuff with your money, with your possessions. So, you know, one of, the, one of the monikers stereotypically in the church is that, oh, well, the church just wants to get into my wallet, right? I want you to know, this is not between you and me. I don't want your money. We'll take it, but we don't want it. This is between you and the Lord. That this is living a life open-handedly. Remember, he's going through these, these pillars of faith of what a, wor- what a life of worship looks like. He's like, hey, listen, don't be motivated by fear where your money's concerned. Don't be looking at your bank account several times a day because you're afraid of, of what you might have to lose. It's like, no, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Be content with what you've already been given. Here's the deal, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of light. That is James 1:17. So anything good you have, it's not yours, it's God's. He has given it to you on loan so that you can steward and shepherd it well. But I say that in one, one breath, and the next breath I'm, I, I wanna say respectfully, God doesn't owe you anything. That's the heresy of the prosperity gospel, right? That, that you give and now God owes me. God doesn't owe you anything. In fact, he's already been so gracious to what he gives. And this is a call to radical generosity. This is a life of worship that, hey, money doesn't have a hold on my life. That if I lost it all tomorrow, I'd be good because I got Jesus. Yeah, that's easy to say and hard to live, right? Because you know when you bring your account forward, those of you that do that, um, you know sometimes things are tight, right? And that can lead to a lot of fear. It's like be content with what you have and don't be motivated by fear. Trust me. 
Because I do know this, God blesses those who trust him. Doesn't mean that if you trust God, he's gonna give you a Mercedes. What he'll do is transform your mind and heart to where possessions don't have a hold on your life. He's inviting you to a life free from the stronghold of money and possessions and you err on the side of radical generosity. Okay, verse seven. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by the grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Then if you jump over to verse 17, have confidence in your leaders, submit to their authority because they keep watch over you who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit for you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray that I might be restored to you soon. Okay, so what's he talking about here? He's talking about honoring leadership, but here's what I want to press into. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life. So when he talks about honoring and submitting to leadership, I think we've got to kind of catch that. Consider the outcome of their way of life. No matter the doctrine of a spiritual leader, what is the product of his or her life? There are too many leaders today that preach a good game, but they're just not good people. So, so uh, the doctrine and teaching and the character have to be congruent. And that goes both ways. He also talks about be wary of strange teaching, strange doctrine. They could be really, really nice people, but have horrible doctrine. And so he's like, hey, like your walk and your talk, they need to match. And so we've got to look at the character of a leader before we jump in and follow them. And I don't need to make a list, but we've seen over the last few years celebrity pastors who have fallen by the wayside because their teaching and their life didn't match up. So, teaching and lives need to be congruent. And if both of these line up, then verse 17, get behind them. Get behind them. Support them. And he says, pray for your leaders. And so, so this is, you know, a little bit hard for me to preach because um, I, I got a selfish stake in this game. And I want to ask you as your pastor, please pray for me. If you could pray for me every day, I'll take it. Because as we are leading a movement and we are doing this together, I'm just one of many, right? And that means that as we are moving in the way of Jesus, that the enemy has a target on your back. If you are following the way of Jesus, the enemy has a target on your back. The enemy would love nothing more than to take me out because God's doing some powerful things here. And he is growing a very peculiar community that we are really seeking to make much of Jesus. And as we make much of Jesus, that makes the enemy pretty unhappy. And so I'm asking you, as, as your spiritual shepherd, man, 
let's get behind. If you believe in the mission of restoration, if you believe in both truth and that most of the time I'm not doing anything to screw it up, if you believe those two things are congruent, then, then let's move together in this. But if you're going to do nothing else, please commit to praying. And this falls under the banner of verse 8, which is really right in the middle of the chapter. And he says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You and I have a shelf life. What was true in the first century is true in the 21st century. The truth of Jesus has not changed one single bit. The same Jesus that was preached here in the first century is being preached today. He's the same. He's the same. So uh, as, as we think about how the teaching of Christianity uh, has evolved and there are denominations that are fighting over the truth of God's word. And I can look at that and go, okay, um, people say, uh, well, this book is archaic. We need to rewrite it and make it more culturally acceptable. And it's like, ah, nah. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one who was, who is, and who is to come. Jesus never changes. For you and me, we're all over the map. Pick a day, right? But Jesus never changes. So many of us are thermometers, right? We go into a situation, we're taking the temperature to see who we need to be on that day. That's not who Jesus is. He's a thermostat. He sets the temperature. And so the encouragement, he says, hey, listen, if you find a leader who, who is uh, speaking the truth of God's word and who lives with high character, emulate their faith. Be a thermostat. Paul was very bold. He says, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. And again, I say this super humbly because I do not have it all together. I think I've been very public about that. Follow me around, I'll disappoint you. But here's what I can promise you. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be transformed every day. And so when I open the word, man, I hope you hear something. You're like, mm, I don't know about that. Take it to Jesus. Get in the secret place. Google it. Man, don't just take my word for it. I mean, this is really an opportunity for us to dig deeper and to own our faith in a powerful way. Verse 15, this is where we're gonna end. Um, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Offer sacrifice of praise to God. This takes us back to the beginning. And with our lips, we praise him, but with our lives, we praise him. That we are living a life of worship. We are living sacrifices. We are choosing daily to to pull ourselves up onto the altar every day and to say, Jesus, I just want to be with you so that I can become like you. So every day, I'm going to get in the secret place with you. And over time, My prayer is that you will develop in me a life of worship, a life that pleases you, a life that is a fragrant offering. So 
Here are five things out of this passage today. Number one, a life of worship emulates the love of Jesus. It all starts there. That's the foundation. Number two, a life of worship is hospitable to all, including strangers. Number three, a life of worship rejects cultural norms and stays committed to the unshakable truth of God's word. Number four, a life of worship holds money loosely and pursues radical generosity. Number five, a life of worship discerns the congruency of the lifestyle and teaching of leadership and supports those who are consistent. 